This is Look West, a podcast from the Assembly Democrats. My family was one house away from where the uh, National Guards were, were on 45th and Broadway in Grand. Uh, so we saw the uh, Watts revolt up close and personal. I do become concerned about uh, looking at the civil rights movement as something that happened and was accomplished versus it's a continuing movement. The people who elected us, elected us to come here, not to get reelected, right. but to represent them right. and to fight for their interest. Today I'm joined by my colleague, Assemblymember Shirley Weber. You've uh, led a remarkable life uh, prior to your time here in the state capitol. I was just wondering how those early experiences shaped your worldview. Well, you know, I, I think I, as, as most folks know, my, um, my family came from Hope, Arkansas. So my, uh, my f father and parents were sharecroppers in Arkansas and, and left Arkansas because if he hadn't, he probably would be dead because of his stance on a host of issues concerning human rights and his position as an African-American man in Hope, Arkansas. Uh, so I spent most of my uh, life in Los Angeles uh, from the time I was three years old. Uh, raising the projects of Los Angeles and the Pueblos over on 52nd and Long Beach and um, lived there for about 10 years before we moved closer to uh, uh, further into South Central LA um, near uh, SC. But um, you know being in the projects was an interesting experience for me because I had an opportunity to uh, basically live in a community where there were people really struggling and dealing with economic issues in their lives, but at the same time with tremendous hope and aspirations about what they wanted to do with their life. Uh, I attended Holmes Avenue Elementary School, which was a really unusual school because it was basically, even though there wasn't any de facto segregation or de jure segregation, it was de facto segregation. Uh, so the school was almost 100% black, I mean, the school was. And all the teachers were African-Americans. Uh, we only had two uh, non-African-Americans in the school. One was a principal, because they didn't allow African-Americans to be principal in many schools. And one was a guy who was gay. Uh, and they, because they didn't let him teach anyone else other than African-American kids, which is kind of a strange situation. But the good thing in, in, in being raised in that environment that, that I took from it was most of my teachers were African-Americans who had come from the South. Uh, they were from, mostly from Texas and Mississippi and Alabama. And they had a tremendous interest in educating African-American children. I mean, they, it was kind of like a civil rights thing, that they knew what it would life was like without an education because they had struggled through the South and gone, most of them had gone to black colleges uh, and had come to California as teachers. And so they understood uh, the kind of challenge we were facing as children. And so where people today make excuses for kids not learning, that they're poor, they're this or that, uh, my teachers taught me because I was poor, I had to do extremely well, that I had to excel, that it was gonna be my way up and my way out, and that there were no excuses for us. So that there, our parents weren't given excuses as to why they couldn't do certain things. If they expected all of us to have a certain dress for the uh, May Day parade or May Day activity, everybody had it, regardless of whether you were poor on welfare, social services, we knew we had expectations of us. And those, those teachers didn't make any excuses. And so I kind of, I appreciated that because probably if I'd been somewhere else, they may would have made an excuse about being poor. Her father's only gone as far as the sixth grade, her mother's as far as the ninth, they're not that literate, blah, blah, blah. But these teachers did not. They, they had high expectations for us as children. And living in and being in that environment really instilled in me that, that I could do it. That no matter what, I could do it because they did it. 
and they came out of similar circumstances. So I learned a lot from living in, in, in poor conditions in Los Angeles. I learned a lot about people with dignity. Uh, the fact that uh, despite being poor, these people had tremendous pride in themselves and their values and their church and their, their life that they had and, and their hope for their kids. And so uh, I didn't see the despair that some people saw. I saw the real hope and opportunity that was in the families and the faces of the individuals that I was raised with. You talked about the fact that uh, your teachers tended to be African-American and they were from the South. We know that there was this great exodus from the South uh, from on the part of a lot of African-Americans mm -hmm. the early 20th century. So I'm sure there could be similar stories told by folks who grew up in Detroit, Chicago, other places. Is there something different or special about California or Los Angeles, you think? You know, I'm, I'm not sure if it is. I, I think we were fortunate. Uh, my brothers and sisters often talk about the fact we were fortunate that we came to Los Angeles versus some of the other places. Because some of the others, uh, when you visit them, their level of um, poverty is much more uh, con concentrated. And, um, and the challenges are so great in those cities where you have, uh, you, you don't have a front yard and a backyard, you have stoops and you have all the houses jammed together. Uh, I didn't recognize that till I was a teenager and I used to travel from my, with my church to youth conferences, went to Detroit and Chicago and all those places and I used to sing and give speeches. And, um, and it was interesting because those ghettos look so different than Los Angeles's. And when I'd have friends come to LA and we take them to Watts or someplace, they go, that's not a ghetto. You know, they have houses, they have backyards, they have grass. And so I think in some sense, uh, we were fortunate in doing that. Uh, it made the, the, the impact of poverty a little bit less. You talked about your dad earlier. You talked about his stance on human rights. And when I think about my parents, I think I became so political because my parents, when you talked about your dad and, and his stance on human rights, and you said he may have been killed if he had stayed in Arkansas, was he overtly political or was it? Yeah, my father was overtly political. My father would not say yes sir, no sir to anyone who didn't say that to him. And you could not call him a boy and expect to be respected. And um, he was not going to allow himself to be cheated. Um, he did some farming. My brother brother was telling me uh, and they took their crops in for being weighed and what have you and they tried to cheat him. And my father would not allow the man to cheat him. And they had a, a brawl, a fight there at this place. And so they were coming to kill my father that night. Uh, and my father had to be uh, taken out of Hope to look to Texarkana and then come to California without us initially. And uh, he came to where my grandmother was, got a job, and eventually moved us out. But my father was so... Um, uh, and, and the reason why he left was not because he was afraid to fight, but, but his father was there and his brothers, and so he didn't want them to all get caught up in it. Um, but it was interesting because every four years we traveled to Arkansas, and my father faced those people every mm -hmm. four years. It was really quite interesting. Um, and every now and then there would be an incident that would occur, and my mother would go, I'm glad we got out of here just in time, <laughs> you know, because someone would confront my father uh, about something that happened. and. Um, or would call him a boy uh, in front of my brother. And uh, that would incite even more anger because my father would, was, was not going to allow himself to be disrespected. And I think as a part of that, we kind of learned um, uh, a lot of stuff about being proud of who we were and not tolerating, uh, not being offensive and mean or anything, but not letting people disrespect us. And, uh, and I think that comes uh, in terms of me because I know my father wanted so badly to go to school and could not, would not allow to go to school. And so I often took the situation that if this man with such limited education 
could stand up for himself, then surely a daughter who goes through all of these schools and gets certified and stamped by everybody should at least demand dignity for herself and for others as well. And, uh, but my father was, um, you know, he was not, he was one of those crazy people. They, they used to call him crazy uh, because he did not say yes or no, sir. And that was uh, his whole life. And so his brothers and father would kind of compensate for him and they do work that he refused to do for somebody else because he had to work his own fields and those kinds of things. And, and, um, and so, uh, like I said, every four years we'd go back to Arkansas and there'd be something going on. Or once my father went to a funeral and he got to a place and they, uh, they refused to serve him food up front. And he took with him one of our cousins who's huge, I mean, really big person. And they were going to this funeral. And this guy was so hungry. And my father refused to buy food because they wanted him to pay for it in the front but pick it up in the back. Mm -hmm. And my father said, hell no. And he said, we'll leave. And the guy says, but we're hungry. He said, we're never that hungry. <laughs> and he said, he said, your father was crazy. We had to drive another, whatever it was, to, before we saw food. That was before McDonald's and Burger right. King and all those folks. But he was not going to eat in the front, pay in the front and eat in the back. He was not going to allow us to go to black and white restrooms in the South. We'd go along the side of the road, but we were not going into those. So it was real clear that he was not going to allow that to happen to him. As a kid, that must be scary but empowering at the same time. Well, you know, it was, it, because it was so normal, it, it wasn't frightening. It, it wasn't something that my father made a big issue out of. My mother just kind of knew what, what we were going to do. And we, when we drove south, you know, we didn't stop at night. We knew we couldn't sleep places. We'd have to change drivers and those kinds of things. And uh, that was just a part of what, what we knew was going to happen, you know, right. that was there. And, um, and you know, uh, most of the folks in the town knew we were coming to town. And so, you know, everybody knew David was coming, you know. And, um, but um, and as I got older, I began to appreciate it because I didn't, as a kid, I didn't realize what was really going on, how dangerous it was. Uh, but I, I began to understand it and respect what my father did because he wasn't hiding in California. So when the civil rights movement happened, and I know obviously there were things happening here in California, mm -hmm. but at the, the height of the sit-ins and the protests in the South, that it, it happened at a quote-unquote safe distance. Mm -hmm. How did that feel? Did it you know, at some point we felt slightly disconnected in Los Angeles. Most folks did because the South was far away in some way. You know, you didn't have as much travel by plane as before. And uh, so we felt somewhat disconnected from it, although you know, we did have some relatives in Little Rock who were part of, a, who knew a little bit about the Little Rock Nine. And, um, but my father would still talk about what was going on, you know, and, 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 and of course that was the era where people wrote letters, so everybody wrote letters about what was taking place. But, but we did feel very distant from it. Uh, that was really before the whole uh, civil rights era came to Los Angeles and started talking about a different kind of segregation. Uh, because uh, Los Angeles was seen almost as the promised land in some way in terms of what was happening in the South versus what was happening on the West Coast. It wasn't really until the Watts riot that people began to realize that there were some serious issues in the Los Angeles area. And um, my family was one house away from where the uh, National Guards were, were on 45th and Broadway in Grand. Mm -hmm. uh, so we saw the uh, Watts revolt up close and personal. Yeah. What was that like? It was interesting and scary at the same time. It was, it was interesting. We had just come back from Arkansas, 
from a vacation, brought a cousin with us who to, to wonderful California, and right. his mother about freaked out. She said it was worse <laughs> than being in the South. So we had to send him home the next day. He got it. He spent one day in California, one right. of those things. Uh, but it was interesting because, you know, you, you know, I was in high school, and you're, you're seeing this occur on your block, the places that you knew just at the end of the block were burned down on Broadway, on 45th and Broadway. Uh, the, you know, all these stores were gone, and and movie theater and things that we'd seen before. Uh, on and one blo one house from our house was where the National Guards were at night with the guns, and and so it was kind of scary. You know, it was scary to think how long is this going to last. Um, at that time, being a high school kid, I didn't understand all the ramifications of how it started and those kinds of things. Uh, I just knew that there was a lot, obviously, a lot of concern. Uh, there were fires, people running, uh, you know, we saw all of this on our front porch. Right. And, um, and it wasn't until after it all ended that you really had a chance to go see the devastation that had occurred. Uh, I was on 45th and Broadway, but the devastation on 103rd and Compton and all those places uh, were, were real clear. Uh, and, uh, and much of the conversation about what happened and what brought it to, you know, was kind of an eye-opener for me, uh, being kind of a protective uh, environment of my family and school and those kinds of things and, and not being confronted with some of the issues that were obviously in LA in terms of police brutality and those kinds of things and so I can remember the conversations and the reports that came out that talked about poverty, it talked about uh, police brutality, it talked about those kinds of issues that and I think in some ways shaped me because I was at that point right in, in high school where you're beginning to think about what are you going to do with your life and where are you going to be. And I can remember very clearly, I had to do a senior paper. I was in one of these advanced classes. And, and so our final project in, in English was to write a paper that would, would pass at the college level. So we had to do it on thesis paper with 30, 40 bibliographies and all this kind of stuff. And my paper was on housing segregation and the impact of housing segregation on um, on economic development in Los Angeles and those kinds of things. And so I, you know, for 16-year-old to write, you know, wrote a paper on housing discrimination and and look at all the kinds of things and I and it really opened my eyes because I had I'd heard it on radio and heard it on TV about the dis housing discrimination and the issues surrounding it and uh, and its impact upon schools and economics and people and that kind of stuff and so it was a and having heard it in much of that discussion it became the impetus for me writing this thesis uh, as I was leaving high school on housing discrimination in Los Angeles and its impact on the lives of the people that are there its immediate impact and its long-term impact when you were talking about growing up in South LA or you were talking about the Watts mm -hmm. uh, rebellion you're talking about being in South LA you said something about the sort of protective shell it's sort of broken out of my protective shell which is interesting because I think a lot of people today wouldn't refer to South LA as a protective shell but LA wasn't the protective shell my family was, family the, was my family and my church was a protective shell. So it was an extended sort of social net. Yes, yeah. yes. The, you know, I was raised in a very strong family. My mother, my father. My mother didn't work uh, because my father worked in steel mills, and she had eight kids, and and felt like with eight kids you can't have a job. And so my grandmother, and my uncle had helped out, and so my family was a, a strong base. And I went to a church that was a strong base, so that they supported the efforts of young people in that church and the kinds of things we did and the travels that we did. And and my school was was pretty good because I, you know once I told you most of the schools were, were African American teachers. So you have this protective shell. The streets are crazy around you. There are things happening on 45th and Broadway. Uh, there's prostitutes everywhere. You know there's uh, all kinds of things that go on. Uh, but there's a protective shell that you, as a family, create for yourself. 
And come nighttime, everybody's in the house looking at television, playing dominoes, or my mother was a master at playing the jacks. And, and so we would, you know, we had a family that had, um, you know, an identity uh, for picnics and barbecues and things like that. that uh, and my father was a very family man, so he never spent money on drinking and partying and those kinds of things. He spent money on his family. And, uh, and that was our protective shell. I know you would have had a different experience if you had gone to a traditional black college versus UCLA. Have you yes, about you know what? And I wanted to go to Howard University. My parents would not let me go to Howard University. Why? Too far? You know, it was too far, and, and they had never been that far. Uh, they didn't know. My mother always felt like, if you get sick, who's going to take care of you? You know, because we had no relatives in D.C., and I had heard about this college called Howard University, a black college, and I really wanted to go. I got accepted. I applied and got accepted. And uh, my mother just had a fit. And, and she was very uncomfortable with us going away because they were poor people. Right. And they couldn't just jump on a plane and go see us. And that right. was before all the credit cards and all that other stuff. So my mother was adamant about it. My father thought it was the best thing in the world that I'd gotten, I'd gotten into Berkeley and SC and all those campuses. He thought it was great because uh, he loved basketball and Lou Alcindor was, was playing basketball. And so he had the UCLA had one of the best basketball, I didn't care anything about basketball, in the world. And so, and plus UCLA was such a known place. And they, they just thought, fell in love with the campus and the, and the whole bit about it. And then, you know, and then being, a, being the first one in the family to really think about going away, I was apprehensive because it's like, God, if I get that, I'm lonely, you know, what am I going to do? And, you know, nobody encouraged me to do that. And so uh, my mother said, you can go to UCLA for two years. And then if you don't like if you like it, you can always transfer. That was the thought. You know, that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> you know, that, was, that was not going. Not that I fell in love with UCLA, but I started adding and subtracting. We're on quarter system. They're on semester. I do not want to lose any credits. I mean, I, I like college, but I wasn't in love with it. And that's why I did everything fast. And so um, I realized that everybody who left came back with fewer credits or something. And I did not want to lose a credit. Right. You know, so I thought, okay, I'm going to suffer, go through this, and get right. it over with. It was a calculation? It was a calculation, very clear calculation. But I had wanted to go to Howard University and got admitted to Howard. And my life probably would have been very different if I that had. Would have been different. Very different, very different world. Uh, my daughter went to an HBCU and. Uh, Where'd she go? She went to Xavier in New Orleans. Yeah. And uh, she got into Berkeley and Howard and Stanford and everybody in the world. But she wanted to go to an HBCU. And, and Xavier is known for its uh, med, school, med program, pre med program. And she went there and she. It, it's been a great experience for her because all of her friendship base are folks like her. Yeah. And, and one, of the, one of the tragedies I feel having gone to UCLA, and, and it's one of those things, you, you go to a campus like that and you meet people on the campus, you meet folks in the dorm, but you end up developing friendship bases, particularly around folks of color, because they're there, not because you have anything in common with right. them. And so as a result, when I graduated, I had nothing in common with these people. Yeah. I mean, my roommate was an African-American who liked Bob Dylan. Come on, you know. I, Jesus, I thought the man was choking or something when he was trying to sing. So I, it was not something I was going to get into. Right. And, and so I ended up with these friends that we had such, the only thread of relationship we had was right. that we happened to be black students trapped in the dorm in right. UCLA. There was no, there was no basis for for friendship beyond right. that, and so it Probably really different majors too. Yep, we different <clears throat> majors, but different worlds, and we're going different places and that kind of stuff. And so it was, it was okay, you know. But I end up without a, uh, I guess a couple of folks in grad school who are close friends of mine. But I end up without a strong friendship base, and mm -hmm. my daughter has such an amazing friendship base out of Xavier uh, because she ended up with people that she liked because. Yeah. 
they had things in common, not because they were the only black students on campus. And, um, and she, to this day, has these, this tremendous network of doctors and pharmacists and, and uh, young African Americans and others around the world that are very close to her. And it's just an amazing professional relationship they have as well. And I kind of sometimes miss that. One of the things I've heard you say, one of the, my favorite things I've heard you say, in the past, the civil rights movement has become so focused on statues, holidays, and celebrations, and you're, you don't want the civil rights movement to be a museum. Exactly, exactly. And that's so true. I mean, there's so much we can learn uh, from the civil rights movement in terms of what we do now in this house and, and in the assembly and in our lives. So there's a lot to be learned about uh, standing up for what you believe in, uh, courage, um, you know, making sure your values are clear, uh, the respect you have. For, there's so many things we can learn. And yet, at the same time, we see people paying homage to folks uh, and, and giving them their, their, uh, their proper respect without realizing that those persons did that, but what they expect from us is that for us to do the same thing. And, and, uh, and so I, I, become, I do become concerned about uh, looking at the civil rights movement as something that happened and was accomplished versus it's a continuing movement that we have to every day look at how do we advance the, the, the life and the, and the opportunities uh, for everyone in, in, in the state rather than just thinking, you know, that happened with those people at that time. But no, this needs to happen with this, these people at this time. And, uh, and we have to keep that going. We have to keep that, that consciousness about uh, dignity and rights. And sometimes it is uncomfortable. Sometimes it's painful. Um, and people sacrifice for it. And, and I try to, with young people that I meet, I try to constantly remind them of the sacrifices that others have done uh, and how we have to live up to those expectations by making similar sacrifices for the principles that they lived by. You know, it's, it's not, it's not um, you know, and you have to keep doing that. I, uh, you know, you have to do it consistently. And um, you know, one of the things I always say is that, you know, um, uh, freedom and justice and equal opportunity is a rare flower that has to be tendered every day and watered and cared for. But hatred is a weed, and it really grows best in neglect. When we stop taking care of the issues of justice and civil rights and equal opportunity and access, we give license to some of the ugliness, even ugliness we see today in the political arena, because we have not been vigilant about what we believe in with regards to all people. And we have to do that consistently, because in small ways, it creeps back into our life in our own expectations or what we didn't get and what somebody else got and you know and we then give life and breathe life into some of the ugliest stuff we know and then we wonder how did we get here and then so it seems to sort of sort of follow logically that treating the civil rights movement as a closed chapter allows us to do that right Most allows definitely. us to think as of We've done our part. We've done our part. We paid tribute. We said those are the greatest people in the world, and we've closed that chapter and we've moved on. And without realizing that freedom and justice is a continuing struggle, and it takes many forms. The civil rights era was one part of it, and it continues. But there's so many other issues that we have to continue to fight for. And to not do that is really to do disservice to those who, who gave so much during that particular era uh, and that expect us to continue the same thing. You know, I. I um, I say to my colleagues oftentimes in the assembly when I look at um, the number of us that are there, the number of people who come out of poverty, who come out of first generation college, who come out of ethnic communities, that when we look at that number, um, 
the decisions we make ought to be different and much more sensitive. You know, I would never, I tell people, if I get on a board, it's supposed to be a different board because I'm there. I'm not there just to do what everybody else did because there's a woman here, there's an African-American woman, there's a woman who lived in poverty, there's a woman who fought obstacles. You know, I ought to have a different level of sensitivity about life than somebody who didn't have it. We see the world differently and it's helpful and we have to be able to bring that to the table. And that's the whole point of representation, right? Exactly. Is that it should be, your perspective should... Your perspective ought to be on the table. Which is informed by your life experiences. Exactly. Who you are, what you bring, you know, it ought to be, it, it, it doesn't mean the perspective is better. Right. But it's a perspective that sometimes we forget if the person weren't in the room sharing it. Right. And that's, a, and that's an important piece of the decision. You mentioned earlier sacrifice. It always occurred to me that great accomplishments tend to not happen without a certain degree of martyrdom, whether it's a human life mm -hmm. or one's career. Uh, you also talked about the fact that we have a lot of colleagues who come from, uh, who had, who came from poverty. Mm -hmm. And I think in a lot of instances you hear people say like, I have to do this. I may not believe in it. This may not be the right thing to mm -hmm. do, but I want to make sure I come back here. <laughs> um, can you speak to that? You know, um, that is so true. And, and, and for me, that is, um, you know, I, I believe that the people who sent us here um, had expectations of us, of what we would represent and how we would do things differently. And, um, and it's not about me being reelected. You know, I often have people ask me questions, do you love it, do you love it? And I always say, I'll never love it. And they go, why? You should love it. I said, no, because when you love something, you'll do anything to stay there. And I won't do anything to remain in the assembly. You know, I have to do the things I believe in. And, uh, and, I, and I challenge my colleagues the same way, you know. And I believe that, you know, if you're representing a population, they understand it. They should understand it. That, uh, that you come here with certain viewpoints of how you're going to help and how you're going to help folks struggling and how you're going to even help those small businesses or whatever it may be to grow and to prosper. But it should be based on your values, that you sleep good at night. That, and I've had to make hard decisions when I was on the school board, hard decisions even up here. But, you know, at, at, at the end of the day, I have to live with Shirley, and I have to look at those people that sent me here um, to let them know that I've done the best I can to represent their interests and to make sure that that goes forward. To not do that, there's really no reason for any of us to be here. You know, if I'm going to do what people who don't look like me do all the time, and not because I believe in it, but because I want to stay here, then there's really no purpose in having a diverse population of individuals here in the assembly. What is the point? You know, if we're all going to do what we've always done, there's no point in it. Um, you know, we've, uh, we've sometimes in San Diego had a, our um, city council uh, with the majority of women on the council, mayor, and, and it was a female, and all the, over half of the members were, were women. And we got the same decisions we got when we had men. And yet we complained about those male decisions. And I'm saying to the women, if this doesn't change it doesn't sensitize us to childcare or some of those life issues that we are faced with. Why are you here? We could just go get these guys again and we could bring them in and then still beat up on them right. some more, you know. I mean, what is the point? Let's trouble for everybody. Well, let's, let's trouble. We know who the enemy is. Right. Let's go after him, you know. And I firmly believe that, that as I know that every now and then you have to take a vote that maybe you don't believe in or whatever, but, but it can't be your mantra and it can't be your escape. You know, that you, because folks who, who, who got us the vote, who got us here, got us here for a reason. Yeah. And that reason was to make just laws that would affect all of Californians. And for me, it, it seems as though there's often this, um, I just have to make this vote just to get to June. 
and then just to get to, to, to November, and then just to get to the next office. And I always wonder when, exactly. when you're making a vote. <laughs> when you're making a vote for, for the people that you represent. Right. And, and, you, and one thing you discover, though, at least I've discovered, um, you know, I, I represent a very diverse district in San Diego. I mean, it's not all, it's 11% African American or 10 or 9 or whatever it is. It's small. And, but it's a little bit of everybody there. But I always believe that if I make a decision based on what is right and just, that I can go and explain that to the people. And, and that the people I represent are people who are interested in, in what is right and what is just. And I can explain that to them. I, I, you know, I sit with my small businesses and I talk about minimum wage. And I know that's a hard pill for them to take. But they understand why I do what, what I take those votes. And then at the same time, you know, I do other things to try to encourage their business as well. So it's not all a one-sided story. But I can't just use that as a cop-out and ignore um, what I need to do in terms of trying to bring some equity and fairness and justice and then talk about the issues of poverty and how devastating it is to families if I'm not going to do anything about it, you know. Um, so I, I really, I wrestle with my colleagues who have their, 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 their foot in this house in their mind somewhere else because they're constantly climbing this ladder. And maybe because I'm old, I'm not climbing any more ladders. I understand <laughs> that, you know. But the bottom line is I discovered when I was a 23-year-old professor at San Diego State that if you start bending and scraping, you will do that your whole life. Mm -hmm. I fought battles when I was untenured at San Diego State, untenured. I'm out there fighting for students, fighting for this, fighting for that. My colleagues who, oh, I'm un untenured, I can't do it who didn't do it, when they got to be full professors at the top of the ladder, still were not fighting battles because they had developed this fear, period, that didn't give them the courage to continue to go to fight an additional battle. So I became, I realized, I said, you know, it's not about tenure and it's yeah. not about um, that. It's really about courage. You know, it's courage. And what Maya Angelou says, without courage, you cannot exercise any value you have consistently. Because somebody's going to challenge your value, whether it's liking people, whether it's showing love, whether it's opening up your homes. Somebody's going to challenge your values about how you see life on a regular basis. And if you don't have the courage, you will not have any values. You wibble, you wobble, you shake, you do every, everything but the right thing. Right. And, um, and so I, 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 deal, I, I, I try to write off some of that as maybe my colleagues are young and have other dreams and aspirations than I have. But I also say that I think it's, um, it's unfortunate that the people who elected us, elected us to come here, not to get reelected, right. but to represent them right. and to fight for their interest. And sometimes they elected us to solve a specific set of problems, mm -hmm. which require... A lot more courage. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It's great talking to you. It's fun. This is Look West, a podcast from the Assembly Democrats.